The title of this morning's message, There Is No Partiality with God, can be found in our text this morning, which is in Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, I I ask for your help now in unfolding these words of the inspired Apostle Paul. These are weighty matters. They deal with not just us, they deal with the whole world. The whole world of nations and kingdoms, those who've heard the gospel and those who haven't heard the gospel, the present, the future, eternity, these are weighty, weighty matters. And so I ask you to come, Holy Spirit, Father, to pour out your spirit upon me to give me an anointing for the Delivery of this word in a right demeanor and truthfulness and faithfulness. And upon your people, Lord, so that they would have a attentive mind and a docile heart, a humble and receptive spirit, so that the transaction here is one of supernatural rather than natural things. You said the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he cannot receive them, for they are spiritually discerned. I tremble, Lord, that some would sit through this message and only hear with the hearing of the ears and not the ears of the heart, or see with the eyes and not the eyes of the heart, and thus go out worse off than when they came in, for having been hardened another degree to sacred things. Rather, Lord, grant that there would be a softening, an opening, a receptive spirit, so that we are profoundly altered in our perception of you and our transformation by you, so that we might reflect you more fully in the world. Come, Lord Jesus, please, and help me and help us in Jesus' name. Your holy name I pray. Amen. It seemed to me that it would be good this morning to put before you uh, two big truths. And then at the end to just lift these two big truths up as as they've emerged from the text and then ask about uh, several practical 1999 implications for your life. So the two truths that I will uh, lay before you, I don't bring to the text, I hope you judge, but rather in wrestling with this text, have them thrust upon me. 
And I think they will be plain to you. So what I'd like to do is invite you to go with me to verse 11 and to walk through this text with me. We won't go into verse 16 because I'll save it for another Sunday when we get back to Romans again. And trace the line of thought in these verses. And I say line of thought very intentionally because Paul doesn't think in a circle. I am unabashedly linear in my thinking about the book of Romans because Paul, the inspired apostle, is linear. He develops an argument, raises an objection, answers the objection, rebuilds the argument, brings out a new premise, defends the premise, brings up an objection, answers the objection, puts in a new premise, and he's building a straight line to heaven. He's building truths that lead from premises to arguments, which become premises to arguments. That's the way he weaves his way through this book. You'll see it very plainly in these verses. And so I want you to have the thrill of thinking his thoughts after him. I know that in a room like this, many of you have had the exhilaration of reading a great writer, say Augustine or or Aquinas, or Anselm, or Calvin, or Luther, or Pascal, or Milton, or Shakespeare, reading some great writer and being disciplined enough to follow their train of thought rather than plopping your little ideas on their words and find yourself swept up into their vision of reality so that you get the awesome experience of thinking another person's thoughts after them. It's a really exhilarating thought. It is, to my mind, what education is all about. Whether it's home education or school education at the parochial level or public school education, it ought to be about enabling people to get into the eyes and the minds and the hands of other human beings greater than themselves and discern some new things about reality and then pass sound judgment upon them. That's what education is to me. I want everybody in this room to have that experience with the Apostle Paul, whether you ever do with Shakespeare or Milton or Pascal or Anselm or anybody else, because this reason. Those people are, by and large, geniuses, literary masters, and to be swept up into their minds is to be swept up into something usually bigger than ourselves, which is great, but all it is is genius. Whereas when you follow the line of thinking of an apostle or a prophet... You are swept up not into genius, but into divine revelation. And they are categorically different. There is an infinite qualitative difference between God's revelation of himself through an inspired spokesman and the highest thoughts to which a human being can arrive by virtue of even God endowed Genius. And so if you've ever tasted of the exhilaration of seeing through the eye of a genius, ask God to take you way beyond that. 
and to give you the discipline and the longing and the passion and the seeking and the loving and the attention to think inspired writers' thoughts after them, and I mean the biblical writers. So that's why I invite you to walk with me through the line of thought in this text. I, I covet for you all the experience of meeting God in the thoughts of God. Let's set the stage for verse 11 here by just backing up a little bit. We won't go all the way back. Verses 1 to 5 in Romans 2 are beginning to show that not only, as chapter 1 showed, are Gentiles cut off from special revelation, sinners and deserving of judgment and without excuse, all of us. But now in chapter 2, he's taking up the, the moral people who know their Bibles, Jewish people, for example, in his day. Today, religious people. And he's saying, those who point the finger at those immoral pagans have three coming back at themselves, and they find when they're honest, do the same kinds of things, and they're hypocrites, and therefore they too are under the indictment that they're pointing at others, and therefore we're all under sin and liable to judgment. And then he says in verse 6 through 10 that this judgment is going to be according to works, deeds, we spent three weeks unpacking how that works together with justification by faith. We're going to come back to that over and over again because we got a big stumbling block in this text with regard to that issue. And now he arrives at verse 11 and he gives the foundational principle of God. This is one of the two big truths that are going to be thrust upon us in this text. One simple sentence. There is no partiality with God. We all see that in the text. There is no partiality, respecter of persons, with God. That is why, he's saying, God is going to judge the Jews according to their works and the Gentiles according to their works, not according to any particular religious advantage that anyone had. Any cultural standing, any, any educational achievements, those will all be superficial things at the judgment. He will go right through them to what's intrinsic and essential at the judgment, and he will not be a respecter of persons. Now, this truth that God is not a God of partiality is so big and so important to the New Testament writers, they created words to get it across. At least we think they did. Because these there are three Greek words. There's a verb, and then there are two kinds of nouns. None of them occur before the New Testament in any Greek literature for 800 years. Why'd they do that? Well, the Old Testament is filled with the reality if not the word. The Greek Old Testament doesn't have this word. But it's got the reality. The reality is stated in two Hebrew words, receive faith. God does not receive faith. That's the literal rendering of these two Hebrew words. Meaning that at the judge's bench, if somebody comes and they've been indicted, and they say, I'm so sorry. And they put on this big performance. 
it has no influence on the judge whatsoever. This face, this face is absolutely irrelevant because God sees right through a face. So not to receive face means not to be influenced by irrelevant appearances. Would that all of us could be that way. We should strive to be that way. God is perfectly that way. He is never impressed by irrelevant accomplishments, irrelevant appearances, irrelevant cultural uh, accoutrements, whatever you bring to him and put up there to make a good show of it. He sees right through it to essential things. And those essential things are the response of our souls and our lives to truth. Now, the New Testament writers saw all of this. And when they came to start writing in Greek, um, they could have just used separate words, receive face. Those two words exist. But they, they put them together and made new words. In uh, James 2.9, there's the verb uh, receive face, and it's now one Greek word. In Acts 10.34, you've got a noun, a face receiver, would be a literal translation. And here in Romans 2.11, you've got a word, face receiving, or impartiality, as we call it, or partiality. There's no partiality, or there's impartiality with God. They did it because... At least my my sense is that when I'm preaching, when I'm praying sometimes, you'll hear me get caught up and I'll start stringing phrases together and you'll shake your head and say, that's not English. You know, I, I think in the first service this morning in my prayer of praise or something, I said something like, make us more of a God glorifyingly earnest people or something. Well, more of a God glorifyingly earnest is a very awkward English phrase. It's not something God, more God glorifyingly. But I do that and I do it without apology because we all know glory. We all know what adverbal endings are. We all know, we know these things and we need fresh senses of this is important. We need to wake up to fresh ways of saying things, even if you have to kind of jumble your words around a little bit. That is one of the reasons poetry exists and why, what percentage of the Old Testament? Half of it is written in poetry. That's one of the reasons language is so inadequate for God. And so it's not surprising to me that biblical writers would now and then uh, create new words like they do to get across this one big truth now. About God. God does not act partially. Doesn't receive anybody's face. Remember the enemies of Jesus. Remember what they said to him? They say, we perceive, Lord, that you don't receive anybody's face, but judge all things truly. So rich people come, and he go right to the rich person's heart. Poor person come, right to the poor person's heart. A woman would come, a man would come, a leper would come. These external things, they were not the issue with Jesus. The heart was always the issue and what the heart did with the body. Now, we've got one truth before us and it creates a huge problem that now Paul has to answer. You see, when Paul is writing, he's debating in his mind. He, he's been doing this so often in the synagogues that when he starts writing, 
He thinks of all the objections that were raised on Mars Hill and in the synagogues and all of his discussions in the house of Tyrannus. He's heard a hundred objections to the gospel. And he's answered them. And as he's writing, he brings up these objections, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly. Well, here's an implicit objection. You can see it very plainly. The, the objection goes something like this that he's going to answer in verse 12. Paul, you say that God is going to judge all people according to their deeds and do it impartially. But in fact, he gave the law to Jews and he didn't give it to American Indians or people in South America 2,000 years ago or China or Australia. So how's this going to work? This, this impartiality with God when you favored a little tribe in the Middle East called Hebrews <coughs> with your very words, which tells them what they're supposed to do, and you tell us we're going to be judged according to what we're supposed to do. This does not sound like impartiality. To which he says now in verse 12, God is impartial because... All who have sinned without the law, now just think about who that is. That's nations who don't have the Old Testament law of Moses or any other part of Scripture. Never heard the gospel. Because all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. The law is not going to be brought in to condemn them. The law is not going to be brought up at the judgment day for people who never had the law and say, you didn't obey this. See, read this right here. You didn't do that. It's not going to happen. That's what this verse says. Those who perish without the law or sin without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jewish people, and now us who have the Bible, will be judged by the law. Now, this is important because it's a common objection, isn't it? Anybody who's tried to share the gospel know that you've heard this objection. Wait a minute now. You say Jesus is the only way. You say you, you need revelation. You've got to have the gospel. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. What about the people who don't have the revelation? And Paul's answer is, the judgment of God will not be partial to those who have more truth. It will not be partial to those who have more truth. It will be according to the truth they have and what they do with it. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Nobody else's truth is going to be used to judge you. The truth you have at your disposal, that you've seen, that you've read, that you know, will be your prosecutor. And that's all that's needed to get you to hell. Nobody has lived up to his own conscience even, let alone all the right things they've been taught to do by other sources. So that's why he uses the word perish here and not otherwise. 
all who have sinned without the law will perish. He doesn't say all who have sinned without the law are free because they didn't have the law. They will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, when someone perishes without the law, it won't be because the law has come in as an indictment to condemn them. It's not hearing, having, reading the law. It's doing it. This is verse 13. So let's continue to the next step in the argument. The reason for this is because it is not the hearers of the law. See, this is why you don't need the law. You don't need to hear the law. Hearing is nothing. You don't need to hear the law. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So it doesn't matter if you've ever heard the law. All that matters is whether you do the law. Problem. <laughs> it screams, right, out of the text. Several. Let me take the one and just give you a moment on it that I'm not going to deal with, but come back to in three weeks. The phrase will be, the doers of the law will be justified. Now, how does that fit together with justification by faith? That's what we'll take up shortly. I'll give you three lozenges to suck on for the next three weeks to see whether or not you come to any conclusion about this. Number one, these are just brief observations. Number one, what if the law commands trust the grace of God for your salvation and don't try to earn it? What if the law says that? If the law says that, then doing the law would mean faith. So does the law teach that? That's first observation. Second observation would be it does not say that justification is based on the doing. It simply observes doers of the law will be justified. The basis of the justification might be faith, which the deeds corroborate. Might be. So take that observation home with you and think about it. Third observation. The future tense of the verb. Justification, or they will be, the doers will be justified, which means probably that the, the judgment in view is future, and so probably what's being spoken of here is what happens at the judgment day when our final vindication and verdict is rendered. In which case, verse 7 and verse 13 may be teaching exactly the same thing. And I spent three weeks trying to help you understand verse 7. Namely, that those who seek for glory and honor and immortality by persevering in good works will receive eternal life. Eternal life is given to those who persevere in good deeds. And it is not based on or earned by those good deeds. But if you weren't here for those three weeks, you may scratch your head maybe and need to come back for when we try to handle this more fully. That's not the problem Paul deals with. He just passes right over that, like everybody's going to understand that one. <coughs> 
Here's the problem Paul deals with. How in the world, Paul, can anybody do what the law requires if they don't have a copy of the law? You, 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 you sound like you think you've solved the problem in verse 12 by saying, Oh, you don't have to have the law because it's deeds not hearing that counts. And I want to say, Paul, if I don't have a copy of the law to tell me what the deeds are I have to do by which I'm going to be judged, how am I, how am I being treated with any kind of impartiality here? And he answers that in verses 14 and 15. Because when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively or by nature the things of the law, these not having the law, that is the Mosaic law, are a law to themselves. Oh, they got a law. They've got a law. Verse 15. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Witness. Not only the fact that they do the sorts of things that the law requires, they feel moral impulses, like verse 14 says, and occasionally do them. But they have this witness, the conscience, bearing witness in two ways. Thoughts rising up alternate, alternate, alternately accusing them. That was a dumb thing you did. That was wrong, you sinner. Or, whew, that was good. You did right. And the conscience goes back and forth, accusing or defending what the heart does. Now, this is the second big truth that is thrust upon me from this text. The first was, God is impartial. And the second is, the law of God, the moral law of God, is written on every human soul. Those are the two truths I want you to take home. One about God and one about you and your children, and everybody you meet on the street. God is impartial, and you have his law written on your heart. So rethink the argument with me for just a moment before we step back and apply. Verse 11, there's no partiality with God. Argument, God's going to judge not on the basis of the amount of truth you have, but on what you do with the truth you do have, with or without the law. Argument, isn't hearing that counts, it's doing that counts. Problem, how can you be a doer of the word if you don't have the word? Answer, you've got the word. End of argument. Now, this is big, because uh, there are really two great things in the universe, God and humans. You could stir angels in and demons, but 
being, human, personal being is what's big. The universe looks big, you know, stars and galaxies, but that's going to roll up like a scroll, and we will remain. Knowing who we are and knowing who God is is what life is all about. Human nature is an awesome thing. I want you to see the word nature, even though the NASB doesn't get it. Verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, I don't know what your version says there, but the literal translation would be by nature. You see, there's a nature here he's talking about. It's a nature imprinted and inscribed with the law of God so that it breaks forth into behavior as a witness to God's work on it and creation of it in his own image. You are created in God's image and part of the meaning of that is that the law of God, the moral law of God is stamped, it's imprinted, it's written, it's carved on your soul. Now, we've seen this before. This is one of the reasons I feel so impelled to lean on it and press it. Because I hadn't really noticed before this working my way through of Romans this time, how relentless Paul is in this. We saw it, for example, in chapter 1, verse 32. Remember that one? They know, this is talking about pagans who have no access to the law of God at all. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So he's saying everybody in the world knows, and now we know how because it's written on their heart, know the ordinance of God and that not doing it means we're worthy of condemnation. Everybody knows that. We saw it in verse 26 on homosexuality. Only there I didn't, I didn't notice it as clearly as I see it now as it's part of the line of thought in this book. It says women exchange their natural function for that which is literally against nature. What does that mean? It means that written across every human soul is a God-ordained nature. For our sexual lives, for our financial lives, for our family lives, for our career lives. There is a, a nature written and you can act in accord with a God-created nature or contrary to a God-created nature. You can suppress this truth. That's the fourth place I see it. Chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 20, and 21. It says they suppress the truth. And then it says... All that you can know about God from nature is so great, is known by them. And then verse 21 says, they knew God. So every human being knows God. Every human being knows he's dependent on God. Every human being knows the law of God. Every human being knows the penalty of the law of God and not keeping it. This is big. This is huge. I mean, you, you can argue against it and say, oh, no, they don't. And then it kind of breaks down into, now, how would you know such a thing? You know, if you're a strict naturalistic evolutionary biologist and you just think human beings are a little more sophisticated combinations of chemicals and electrical impulses. And here's this preacher blabbing off about God and 
creation and law written on this fancy um, thing here. Who's right? I mean, how would you decide? Because there's no way to test this in the laboratory. Absolutely zero way you can do any kind of little litmus paper and, and decide, is human being this way? This is the meaning of humanity? Or that way? Do you have a fish on the back of your car? Or a little crawly thing on the back of your car? <laughs> With Darwin written in the middle of it. Which is it? You've got two big worldviews here. And I, I can't answer that question for you here except to say that I, I come to my own convictions over the years of walking with these apostles and trying my best to discern if they are reliable knowers of the human heart and the human condition and the world condition and all that I know about myself by nature and all that I see going on. And then I try to read faithfully some of these biologists and others. And frankly, there's no competition when it comes to knowing humanity and the meaning of reality. There is no competition. I, you don't need to take my word for it. In fact, you very definitely shouldn't take my word for it because then you'd be a second-hander and wouldn't really know God. But you must discern when you hear a claim like this, which is so huge about who you are and who your children are and who all your family is and who everybody in this world is and what humanity means, what it means to be alive on planet Earth. you got to decide. Am I just a blob of sophisticated electronic chemical stuff or is there a God and has he written something on me? So the two truths that I want to close by just giving you a brief application of is uh, one, God is impartial and two, uh, you are created in his image with the law of God written on your heart. Here are my three applications. Do you know this in relationship to yourself? Do you know it in relation to your children? And do you know it in relation to others? Just briefly on each of those. Do you know yourself in this way? I just, I just meditated on this yesterday and so longed that you would experience this as a... The effect that I see it happen, having is that if, if you see God as impartial and judging all people that way, and Him having written His law upon your heart and upon the heart of everybody in the world, what would happen then, if you dwell on that and it hits home to you and you, you embrace these truths, is that your own perceptions of truth and your convictions about reality would take on such a gravity and such a weight and such a stability and solidity that everything in your life would change. And, and I have in mind here your difference from the, what I see in the world, and in America in particular, in particular, where life is a cafeteria. Truth is a salad bar. And here's a little Christianity carrot bowl. And here's a little Hindu sprout bowl. And here's a little... Hinduism or Buddhist 
or secular bowl of something. And life is choice. And I will, to satisfy my needs and fulfill my sense of being, have this bowl. You can have your bowl. But if what I'm saying this morning is anywhere near the truth, if God has something to write that's not that but this, and He writes it, that whole image of life is gone forever. It's gone forever. And truth becomes real. It's there. It's in God. He embodies it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Echoes of it start emerging from your own soul as you hear truth preached from His Word and from inside you and outside in the Bible. They start coming together and this trembling sense of, this is real. This fits. This makes sense of everything. This is who I am and what I've created to be. That's what I think would happen if we knew ourselves in this way. And all this talk about relativism would be seen for the dismaying, destructive salad bar, poisonous salad bar that it is. There's a line. It's a very narrow line. And we need to get on it. Second application is your children. I know not everybody in this room has children, but everybody knows children and cares about children. How do you look at children? Do you ponder when you look at a little three-year-old Talitha? Do you look into a little baby? Do you think about children in the womb? Do you look at a 12-year-old or a teenager and think, here is a creature on whom God, a few months ago, wrote his law. Never to be effaced. God came down to do a creative work, a moral creation of a human soul in his own image that nobody else can do, not even a mother and a father can do. And he gave human being nature, human nature, unlike any other nature, to this child. And when I think of that and my responsibility for Talitha over the next 15, 20 years, I say there is no trifling here. This is not to be taken for granted here. No neglect here. No abuse here. This is awesome what I am called upon to do here to bring the Word of God into conjunction to the law of God written on this little girl's heart in such a way there there explodes in her life a love of this God. Oh, parents. Oh, parents. Don't ship your children out. Don't bargain them off to Sunday school and secular school or Christian school or home school. Or don't, don't just... Somebody else do it. Don't do that. Look at them. Look at them. And what you are called to be 
for them. Last application. All the other people in your life that you know, the ones you work with, the ones you go to school with, the ones in your neighborhood, the wider family, everybody you will look upon tomorrow has the law of God written on their heart. Everybody. Here are two concluding exhortations in view of that. Number one, be hopeful in your evangelism in 1999. Yes, I don't want to minimize the blinding effects of the fall and of sin. We suppress the truth, but the point of Romans 1 and 2 is it's there. You will never look upon a human being on whom the main writing of their soul is rock music. Or on whom the main writing of their soul is uh, finance textbooks. Or on whom the main writing of their soul is sex manuals or dirty books or romance novels. You'll never look upon a person for whom the main writing is that. The main writing will always be God's writing. Everybody you know is written upon by God. And therefore... Bring the truth of the Bible to bear on the template of the law of God and pray that all of the suppressing wickedness that is filling these grooves and making it look so smooth and non-godly that the Holy Spirit will chip out all the falsehoods and the template of natural revelation will fit with the template of special revelation in the gospel and they will awaken. It's called conversion. It's called new birth. Believe that that can happen in the hardest person you've ever known because they have the law written on their hearts. And then lastly, whether you look at somebody of another race, or whether you look at a politician, or whether you look at a criminal, or whether you look at whatever and find yourself feeling bad feelings, Resentment or anger or disagreement. Beware lest you despise another human being. Beware lest you despise another human being. Because everyone you look upon... Was it next week? They'll start up the trial in the Senate, right? And be more the same. And feelings will rise. And there will be all kinds of from both sides. What a jerk. At those moments, let Christians say on every one of those men and women and on everybody I meet and dislike, the law of God was written by God with a careful hand. And There should be a reverencing and a hallowing and an aroma of sanctity over every human soul, even when there are repugnant elements in that person. So, if you feel some repugnance, or if you feel some disagreement, or if you feel some anger, or if you feel some distance, even when it's warranted, 
Don't let it become the consuming means of despising, but rather let it always be mellowed with the aroma of reverence for the creation of God. It will change so many things. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray earnestly now that you would apply these things better than I have. And take the truth of your impartiality and the truth of human beings having the law of God written on our hearts so that we know the kinds of things we're called upon to do and what we're going to pay if we don't. Take these two great truths and transform our own view of truth, our own view of our children, and our own view of the world. I commend your church to you for the close of this year. And I ask that you would bring great blessing upon your people. Just stand with me for a benediction. Now here at the end of the year, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. Happy New Year.